Section 1 of The Doll of a Romance and Other Pieces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. The Doll of a Romance and Other Pieces by Nathaniel Hawthorne. A scene from The Doll of a Romance. Dr. Dolliver, a worthy personage of extreme antiquity, was aroused rather prematurely one summer morning by the shouts of the child Pansy in an adjoining chamber, summoning old Martha, who performed the duties of nurse, housekeeper, and kitchen-maid in the doctor's establishment, to take up her little ladyship and dress her. The old gentleman woke with more than his customary alacrity, and after taking a moment to gather his wits about him, pulled aside the faded moreen curtains of his ancient bed, and thrust his head into a beam of sunshine that caused him to wink and withdraw it again. This transitory glimpse of good Dr. Dolliver showed a flannel nightcap fringed round with stray locks of silvery white hair, and surmounting a meager and duskily yellow visage, which was crossed and crisscrossed with a record of his long life and wrinkles, faithfully written, no doubt, but with such cramped chirography of father time that the purport was illegible. It seemed hardly worthwhile for the patriarch to get out of bed any more, and bring his forlorn shadow into the summer day that was made for younger folks. The doctor, however, was by no means of that opinion, being considerably encouraged towards the toil of living twenty-four hours longer by the comparative case with which he found himself going through the usually painful process of bestirring his rusty joints, stiffened by the very rest and sleep that should have made them pliable, and putting them in a condition to bear his weight upon the floor. Nor was he absolutely disheartened by the idea of those tonsorial, ablutionary, and personally decorative labors which are apt to become so intolerably irksome to an old gentleman after performing them daily and daily for fifty, sixty, or seventy years, and finding them still as immitigably recurrent as at first. Dr. Dolliver could no wise account for this happy condition of his spirits and physical energies, until he remembered taking an experimental sip of a certain cordial, which was long ago prepared by his grandson, and carefully sealed up in a bottle, and had been reposited in a dark closet among a parcel of effete medicines ever since that gifted young man's death. It may have wrought effect upon me, thought the doctor, shaking his head as he lifted it again from the pillow. It may be so, for poor Edward oftentimes instilled strange efficacy into his perilous drugs, but I will rather believe it to be the operation of God's mercy, which may have temporarily invigorated my feeble age for little Pansy's sake. A twinge of his familiar rheumatism, as he put his foot out of bed, taught him that he must not reckon too confidently upon even a day's respite from the intrusive family of aches and infirmities, which, with their proverbial fidelity to attachments once formed, had long been the closest acquaintances that the poor old gentleman had in the world. Nevertheless, he fancied the twinge a little less poignant than those of yesterday, and moreover, after stinging him pretty smartly, it passed gradually off with a thrill, which, in its latter stages, grew to be almost agreeable. Pain is but pleasure too strongly emphasized. With cautious movements and only a groan or two, the good doctor transferred himself from the bed to the floor, where he stood a while, gazing from one piece of quaint furniture to another, such as stiff-backed mayflower chairs, 
an oaken chest of drawers carved cunningly with shapes of animals and wreaths of foliage, a table with multitudinous legs, a family record in faded embroidery, a shelf of black-bound books, a dirty heap of gallipots and files in a dim corner. Gazing at these things, and steadying himself by the bedpost while his inert brain, still partially benumbed with sleep, came slowly into accordance with the realities about him. The object which most helped to bring Dr. Dolliver completely to his waking perceptions was one that common observers might suppose to have been snatched bodily out of his dreams. The same sunbeam that had dazzled the doctor between the bed curtains gleamed on the weather-beaten gilding which had once adorned this mysterious symbol and showed it to be an enormous serpent twining round a wooden post and reaching quite from the floor of the chamber to its ceiling. It was evidently a thing that could boast of considerable antiquity, the dry rot having eaten out its eyes and gnawed away the tip of its tail, and it must have stood long exposed to the atmosphere, for a kind of gray moss had partially overspread its tarnished gilt surface. And a swallow, or other familiar little bird, in some bygone summer seemed to have built its nest in the yawning and exaggerated mouth. It looked like a kind of Manichaean idol, which might have been elevated on a pedestal for a century or so, enjoying the worship of its votaries in the open air, until the impious sect perished from among men. All save old Dr. Dolliver, who had set up the monster in his bedchamber for the convenience of private devotion. But we are unpardonable in suggesting such a fantasy to the prejudice of our venerable friend, knowing him to have been as pious and upright a Christian, and with as little of the serpent in his character as ever came a Puritan lineage. Not to make a further mystery about a very simple matter, this bedimmed and rotten reptile was once the medical emblem or apothecary's sign of the famous Dr. Swinnerton, who practiced physique in the early days of New England, when a head of Asculapius or Hippocrates would have vexed the souls of the righteous as savoring of heathendom. The ancient dispenser of drugs had therefore set up an image of the brazen serpent, and followed his business for many years with great credit under the scriptural device, and Dr. Dolliver, being the apprentice, pupil, and humble friend of the learned Swinnerton's old age, had inherited the symbolic snake and much other valuable property by his bequest. While the patriarch was putting on his small clothes, he took care to stand in the parallelogram of bright sunshine that fell upon the uncarpeted floor. The summer warmth was very genial to his system, and yet made him shiver, his wintry veins rejoiced at it, though the reviving blood tingled through them with a half-painful, of only half-pleasurable titillation. For the first few moments after creeping out of bed, he kept his back to the sunny window, and seemed mysteriously shy of glancing thitherward. But as the June fervor pervaded him more and more thoroughly, he turned bravely about and looked forth at a burial ground on the corner of which he dwelt. There lay many an old acquaintance who had gone to sleep with the flavor of Dr. Dolliver's tinctures and powders upon his tongue. It was the patient's final bitter taste of this world, and perhaps doomed to be a recollected nauseousness in the next. Yesterday, in the chill of his forlorn old age, the doctor expected soon to stretch out his weary bones among that quiet community, and might scarcely have shrunk from the prospect on his own account, except, indeed, that he dreamily mixed up the infirmities of his present condition with the repose of the approaching one, being haunted by a notion that the damp earth under the grass and dandelions 
must needs be pernicious for his cough and his rheumatism. But this morning the cheerful sunbeams, or the mere taste of his grandson's cordial that he had taken at bedtime, or the fitful vigor that often sports irreverently with aged people, had caused an unfrozen drop of youthfulness somewhere within him to expand. Him, him, quoth the doctor, hoping with one effort to clear his throat of the dregs of a ten years' cough. Matters are not so far gone with me as I thought. I have known mightily sensible men, when only a little age-stricken or otherwise out of sorts, to die of mere faint-heartedness a great deal sooner than they need. He shook his silvery head at his own image in the looking-glass, as if to impress the apothegm on that shadowy representative of himself. And for his part, he determined to pluck up a spirit and live as long as he possibly could, if it were only for the sake of little Pansy, who stood as close to one extremity of human life as her great-grandfather to the other. This child of three years old occupied all the unfossilized portion of good Dr. Dolliver's heart. Every other interest that he formerly had, and the entire confraternity of persons whom he once loved, had long ago departed, and the poor doctor could not follow them, because the grasp of Pansy's baby fingers held him back. So he crammed a great silver watch into his fob, and drew on a patchwork morning gown of an ancient fashion. Its original material was said to have been the embroidered front of his own wedding waistcoat, and the silken skirt of his wife's bridal attire, which his eldest granddaughter had taken from the carved chest of drawers, after poor Bessie, the beloved of his youth, had been half a century in the grave. Throughout many of the intervening years, as the garment got ragged, the spinsters of the old man's family had quilted their duty and affection into it, in the shape of patches upon patches, rose color, crimson, blue, violet, and green, and then, as their hopes faded and their life kept growing shadier, and their attire took a somber hue, sober gray, and great fragments of funereal black, until the doctor could revive the memory of most things that had befallen him by looking at his patchwork gown as it hung upon a chair. And now it was ragged again, and all the fingers that should have mended it were cold. It had an eastern fragrance, too, a smell of drugs, strong-scented herbs, and spicy gums gathered from the many potent infusions that had from time to time been spilt over it, so that Snuffing him afar off, you might have taken Dr. Dolliver for a mummy, and could hardly have been undeceived by his shrunken and torpid aspect as he crept nearer. Wrapped in his odorous and many-colored robe, he took staff in hand, and moved pretty vigorously to the head of the staircase. As it was somewhat steep and but dimly lighted, he began cautiously to descend, putting his left hand on the banister and poking down his long stick to assist him in making sure of the successive steps. And thus he became a living illustration of the accuracy of Scripture, where it describes the aged as being afraid of that which is high, a truth that is often found to have a sadder purport than its external one. Halfway to the bottom, however, the doctor heard the impatient and authoritative tones of little Pansy, Queen Pansy, as she might fairly have been styled in reference to her position in the household, calling amain for grandpapa and breakfast. He was startled into such perilous activity by the summons that his heels slid on the stairs. The slippers were shuffled off his feet, and he saved himself from a tumble only by quickening his pace and coming down at almost a run. "'Mercy on my poor old bones!' mentally exclaimed the doctor, 
fancying himself fractured in fifty places. Some of them are broken, surely, and methinks my heart has leaped out of my mouth. What? All right? Well, well, but Providence is kinder to me than I deserve, prancing down this steep staircase like a kid of three months old. He bent stiffly to gather up his slippers and fallen staff, and meanwhile Pansy had heard the tumult of her great-grandfather's descent and was pounding against the door of the breakfast room in her haste to come at him. The doctor opened it, and there she stood, a rather pale and large-eyed little thing, quaint in her aspect, as might well be the case with a motherless child, dwelling in an uncheerful house with no other playmates than a decrepit old man and a kitten, and no better atmosphere within doors than the odor of decayed apothecary's stuff, nor gayer neighborhood than that of the adjacent burial ground where all her relatives from her great-grandmother downward lay calling to her, Pansy, Pansy, it is bedtime, even in the prime of the summer morning. For those dead womenfolk, especially her mother, and the whole row of maiden aunts and grand-aunts, could not be but anxious about the child, knowing that little Pansy would be far safer under a tuft of dandelions than if left alone, as she soon must be in this difficult and deceitful world. Yet in spite of the lack of damask roses in her cheeks, she seemed a healthy child, and certainly showed great capacity of energetic movement in the impulsive capers with which she welcomed her venerable progenitor. She shouted out her satisfaction, moreover, as her custom was, having never had any oversensitive auditors about her to tame down her voice, till even the doctor's dull ears were full of the clamor. "'Pansy, darling,' said Dr. Dolliver cheerily, patting her brown hair with his tremulous fingers, "'thou hast put some of thine own friskiness into poor old grandfather this fine morning. Dost know, child, that he came near breaking his neck downstairs at the sound of thy voice?' What wouldst thou have done then, little pansy? Kiss poor grandpapa and make him well, answered the child, remembering the doctor's own mode of cure and similar mishaps to herself. It shall do poor grandpapa good, she added, putting up her mouth to apply the remedy. Ah, oh, little one, thou hadst greater faith in thy medicines than ever I had in my drugs, replied the patriarch with a giggle, surprised and delighted at his own readiness of response. But the kiss is good for my feeble old heart, Pansy, though it might do little to mend a broken neck. So give Grandpapa another dose and let us to breakfast. In this merry humor they sat down to the table, great-grandpapa and Pansy side by side, and the kitten as soon appeared, making a third in the party. First she showed her mottled head out of Pansy's lap, delicately sipping milk from the child's basin without rebuke. Then she took post on the old gentleman's shoulder, purring like a spinning wheel, trying her claws in the wadding of his dressing-gown, and still more impressively reminding him of her presence by putting out a paw to intercept a warmed-over morsel of yesterday's chicken on its way to the doctor's mouth. After skillfully achieving this feat, she scrambled down upon the breakfast table and began to wash her face and hands. Evidently these companions were all three on intimate terms, as was natural enough, since a great many childish impulses were softly creeping back on the simple-minded old man insomuch that, if no worldly necessities nor painful infirmity had disturbed him, his remnant of life might have been as cheaply and cheerily enjoyed as the early playtime of the kitten and the child. Old Dr. Dolliver and his great-granddaughter, a ponderous title which seemed quite to overwhelm the tiny figure of Pansy, had met one another at the two extremities of the life circle. Her sunrise served him for a sunset, 
illuminating his locks of silver, and hers of golden brown with a homogeneous shimmer of twinkling light. Little Pansy was the one earthly creature that inherited a drop of the Dolliver blood. The doctor's only child, poor Bessie's offspring, had died the better part of a hundred years before, and his grandchildren, a numerous and dimly remembered brood, had vanished along his weary track in their youth, maturity, or incipient age. Till hardly knowing how it had all happened, he found himself tottering onward with an infant's small fingers in his nerveless grasp. So mistily did his dead progeny come and go in the patriarch's decayed recollection that this solitary child represented for him the successive babyhoods of the many that had gone before. The emotions of his early paternity came back to him. She seemed the baby of a past age oftener than she seemed pansy. A whole family of grand-aunts, one of whom had perished in her cradle never so mature as pansy now, another in her virgin bloom, another in autumnal maidenhood, yellow and shriveled with vinegar in her blood, and still another a forlorn widow whose grief outlasted even its vitality and grew to be merely a torpid habit, and was saddest then. All their hitherto forgotten features peeped through the face of the great-grandchild, and their long, inaudible voices sobbed, shouted, or laughed in her familiar tones. But it often happened to Dr. Dolliver while frolicking amid this throng of ghosts, where the only one reality looked no more vivid than its shadowy sisters. It often happened that his eyes filled with tears at a sudden perception of what a sad, and poverty-stricken old man he was, already remote from his own generation, and bound to stray further onward as the sole playmate and protector of a child. As Dr. Dolliver, in spite of his advanced epoch of life, is likely to remain a considerable time longer upon our hands, we deem it expedient to give a brief sketch of his position, in order that the story may get onward with the greater freedom when he rises from the breakfast table. Deeming it a matter of courtesy, we have allowed him the honorary title of doctor, as did all his townspeople and contemporaries, except perhaps one or two formal old physicians, stingy of civil phrases and overjealous of their own professional dignity. Nevertheless, these crusty graduates were technically right in excluding Dr. Dolliver from their fraternity. He had never received the degree of any medical school, nor, save it might be for the cure of a toothache or a child's rash or a Whitlow on a seamstress's finger or some such trifling malady, had he ever been even a practitioner of the awful science with which his popular designation connected him. Our old friend, in short, even at his highest social elevation, claimed to be nothing more than an apothecary, and in these latter and far less prosperous days, scarcely so much. Since the death of his last surviving grandson, Pansy's father, whom he had instructed in all the mysteries of his science, and who, being distinguished by an experimental and inventive tendency, was generally believed to have poisoned himself with an infallible panacea of his own distillation. Since that final bereavement, Dr. Dolliver's once pretty flourishing business had lamentably declined. After a few months of unavailing struggle, he found it expedient to take down the brazen serpent from the position to which Dr. Swinnerton had originally elevated it in front of his shop in the main street, and to retire to his private dwelling, situated in a by-lane and on the edge of a burial ground. This house, as well as the brazen serpent, some old medical books, and a drawer full of manuscripts, had come to him by the legacy of Dr. Swinnerton. The dreariness of the locality had been of small importance to our friend in his young manhood, 
when he first led his fair wife over the threshold, and so long as neither of them had any kinship with the human dust that rose into little hillocks and still kept accumulating beneath their window. But too soon afterwards, when poor Bessie herself had gone early to rest there, it is probable that an influence from her grave may have been prematurely calmed and depressed her widowed husband, taking away much of the energy from what should have been the most active portion of his life. Thus, he never grew rich. His thrifty townsmen used to tell him that, in any other man's hands, Dr. Swinnerton's brazen serpent, meaning, I presume, the inherited credit and goodwill of that old worthy's trade, would need but ten years' time to transmute its brass into gold. In Dr. Dolliver's keeping, as we have seen, the inauspicious symbol lost the greater part of what superficial gilding it originally had. Matters had not mended with him in more advanced life, after he had deposited a further and further portion of his heart and its affections in each successive one of a long row of kindred graves. And as he stood over the last of them, holding Pansy by the hand, and looking down upon the coffin of his grandson, it is no wonder that the old man wept, partly for those gone before, but not so bitterly as for the little one that stayed behind. Why had God not taken her with the rest? And then, so hopeless as he was, so destitute of possibilities of good, his weary frame, his decrepit bones, his dried-up heart might have crumbled into dust at once, and have been scattered by the next wind over all the heaps of earth that were akin to him. This intensity of desolation, however, was of too positive a character to be long sustained by a person of Dr. Dolliver's original gentleness and simplicity, and now so completely tamed by age and misfortune. Even before he turned away from the grave, he grew conscious of a slightly cheering and invigorating effect from the tight grasp of the child's warm little hand. Feeble as he was, she seemed to adopt him willingly for her protector, and the doctor never afterwards shrank from his duty nor quailed beneath it, but bore himself like a man, striving amid the sloth of age, and the breaking up of intellect to earn the competency which he had failed to accumulate, even in his most vigorous days. To the extent of securing a present subsistence for Pansy and himself, he was successful. After his son's death, when the brazen serpent fell into popular disrepute, a small share of tenacious patronage followed the old man into his retirement. In his prime, he had been allowed to possess more skill than usually fell to the share of a colonial apothecary, having been regularly apprenticed to Dr. Swinnerton, who throughout his long practice was accustomed, personally, to concoct the medicines which he prescribed and dispensed. It was believed, indeed, that the ancient physician had learned the art at the world-famous drug manufactory of Apothecary's Hall in London, and, as some people half-malignly whispered, had perfected himself under masters more subtle than were to be found even there. Unquestionably, in many critical cases he was known to have employed remedies of mysterious composition and dangerous potency, which in less skillful hands would have been more likely to kill than cure. He would willingly, it is said, have taught his apprentice the secrets of these prescriptions, but the latter, being of a timid character and delicate conscience, had shrunk from acquaintance with them. It was probably as the result of the same scrupulosity that Dr. Dolliver had always declined to enter the medical profession, in which his old instructor had set him such heroic examples of adventurous dealing with matters of life and death. Nevertheless, the aromatic fragrance, so to speak, of the learned Swinnerton's reputation 
had clung to our friend throughout life, and there were elaborate preparations in the pharmacopoeia of that day, requiring such minute skill and conscientious fidelity in the concoctor that the physicians were still glad to confide them to one in whom these qualities were so evident. Moreover, the grandmothers of the community were kind to him, and mindful of his perfumes, his rose water, his cosmetics, tooth powders, pomanders, and pomades, the scent memory of which lingered about their toilet tables, or came faintly back from the days when they were beautiful. Among this class of customers, there was still a demand for certain comfortable little nostrums, delicately sweet and pungent to the taste, cheering to the spirits and fragrant in the breath the proper distillation of which was the airiest secret that the mystic Swinnerton had left behind him. And besides, these old ladies had always liked the manners of Dr. Dolliver, and used to speak of his gentle courtesy behind the counter as having positively been something to admire. Though of later years an unrefined and almost rustic simplicity, such as belonged to his humble ancestors, appeared to have taken possession of him, as it often does of prettily mannered men in their late decay. But it resulted from all these favorable circumstances that the doctor's marble mortar, though worn with long service and considerably damaged by a crack that pervaded it, continued to keep up an occasional intimacy with the pestle, and he still weighed drachms and scruples in his delicate scales, though it seemed impossible dealing with such minute quantities that his tremulous fingers should not put in too little or too much, leaving out life with the deficiency or spilling in death with the surplus. To say the truth, his staunchest friends were beginning to think that Dr. Dolliver's fits of absence, when his mind appeared absolutely to depart from him while his frail old body worked on mechanically, rendered him not quite trustworthy without a close supervision of his proceedings. It was impossible, however, to convince the aged apothecary of the necessity for such vigilance. And if anything could stir up his gentle temper to wrath, or, as oftener happened to tears, it was the attempt, which he was marvelously quick to detect, thus to interfere with his long-familiar business. The public, meanwhile, ceasing to regard Dr. Dolliver in his professional aspect, had begun to take an interest in him as perhaps their oldest fellow citizen. It was he that remembered the great fire and the great snow, and that had been a grown-up stripling at the terrible epoch of witch times, and a child just breached at the breaking out of King Philip's Indian War. He, too, in his schoolboy days, had received a benediction from the patriarchal governor Bradstreet, and thus could boast, somewhat as bishops do of their unbroken secession from the apostles, of a transmitted blessing from the whole company of sainted pilgrims among whom the venerable magistrate had been an honored companion. Viewing their townsmen in this aspect, the people revoked the courteous doctorate with which they had heretofore decorated him, and now knew him most familiarly as Grand Sir Dolliver his white head, his Puritan band, his threadbare garb, the fashion of which he had ceased to change half a century ago, his gold-headed staff that had been Dr. Swinnerton's, his shrunken, frosty figure and its feeble movement. All these characteristics had a wholeness and permanence in the public recognition, like the meeting-house steeple or the town pump. All the younger portion of the inhabitants unconsciously ascribed a sort of aged immortality to Grand Sir Dolliver's infirm and reverend presence. They fancied that he had been born old. At least I remember entertaining some such notions about age-stricken people when I myself was young. And that he could the better tolerate his aches and incommodities, his dull ears and dim eyes, 
his remoteness from human intercourse within the crust of indurated years, the cold temperature that kept him always shivering and sad, the heavy burden that invisibly bent down his shoulders. That all these intolerable things might bring a kind of enjoyment to Grand Sir Dolliver as the lifelong conditions of his peculiar existence. But alas, it was a terrible mistake. This weight of years had a perennial novelty for the poor sufferer. He never grew accustomed to it, but long as he had now borne the fretful torpor of his waning life, and patient as he seemed, he still retained an inward consciousness that these stiffened shoulders, these quailing knees, this cloudiness of sight and brain, this confused forgetfulness of men and affairs, were troublesome accidents that did not really belong to him. He possibly cherished a half-recognized idea that they might pass away. Youth, however eclipsed for a season, is undoubtedly the proper, permanent, and genuine condition of man. And if we look closely into this dreary delusion of growing old, we shall find that it never absolutely succeeds in laying hold of our own innermost convictions. A somber garment, woven of life's unrealities, had muffled us from our true self, but within it smiles the young man whom we knew. The ashes of many perishable things have fallen upon our youthful fire, but beneath them lurk the seeds of inextinguishable flame. So powerful is this instinctive faith that men of simple modes of character are prone to antedate its consummation. And thus it happened with poor Grand Sir Dolliver, who often awoke from an old man's fitful sleep with a sense that his senile predicament was but a dream of the past night. And hobbling hastily across the cold floor to the looking-glass, he would be grievously disappointed at beholding the white hair, the wrinkles and furrows, the ashen visage and bent form, the melancholy mask of age, in which, as he now remembered, some strange and sad enchantment had involved him for years gone by. To other eyes than his own, however, the shriveled old gentleman looked as if there were little hope of his throwing off this too artfully wrought disguise, until at no distant day his stooping figure should be straightened out, his hoary locks be smoothed over his brows, and his much-enduring bones be laid safely away with a green coverlet spread over them beside his Bessie, who doubtless would recognize her youthful companion in spite of his ugly garniture of decay." He longed to be gazed at by the loving eyes now closed. He shrank from the hard stare of them that loved him not. Walking the streets, seldom and reluctantly, he felt a dreary impulse to elude the people's observation, as if with a sense that he had gone irrevocably out of fashion and broken his connecting links with the network of human life. Or else it was that nightmare feeling which we sometimes have in dreams when we seem to find ourselves wandering through a crowded avenue with the noonday sun upon us, and some wild extravagance of dress or nudity. He was conscious of estrangement from his townspeople, but did not always know how, nor wherefore, nor why he should be thus groping through the twilight, mist, and solitude. If they spoke loudly to him with cheery voices, the greeting translated itself faintly and mournfully to his ears. If they shook him by the hand, it was as if a thick, insensible glove absorbed the kindly pressure and the warmth. When little Pansy was the companion of his walk, her childish gaiety and freedom did not avail to bring him into closer relationship with men, but seemed to follow him into that region of indefinable remoteness, that dismal fairyland of aged fancy into which old Grand Sir Dolliver 
had so strangely crept away. Yet there were moments, as many persons had noticed, when the great-grandpapa would suddenly take stronger hues of life. It was as if his faded figure had been colored over anew, or at least as he and Pansy moved along the street, as if a sunbeam had fallen across him, instead of the gray gloom of an instant before. His chilled sensibilities had probably been touched and quickened by the warm contiguity of his little companion through the medium of her hand, as it stirred within his own, or some inflection of her voice that set his memory ringing and chiming with forgotten sounds. While that music lasted, the old man was alive and happy, and there were seasons, it might be, happier than even these, when Pansy had been kissed and put to bed, and Grand Sir Oliver sat by his fireside gazing in among the massive coals, and absorbing their glow into those cavernous abysses with which all men communicate. Hence come angels or fiends into our twilight musings, according as we may have peopled them in bygone years. Over our friend's face in the rosy flicker of the fire gleam stole an expression of repose and perfect trust that made him as beautiful to look at in his high-backed chair as the child pansy on her pillow. And sometimes... The spirits that were watching him beheld a calm surprise draw slowly over his features and brighten into joy, yet not so vividly as to break his evening quietude. The gate of heaven had been kindly left ajar, that this forlorn old creature might catch a glimpse within. All the night afterwards he would be semi-conscious of an intangible bliss diffused through the fitful lapses of an old man's slumber and would awake at early dawn with a faint thrilling of the heart's strings, as if there had been music just now wandering over them. End of section 1